I thought you'd jumped like all the time. Social commander. <laughs> space social commander. <laughs> I hope you're not about space. No. I've just panicked you. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. Survival Lab. Okay, shall we start? Yeah, are we going to try and do it together? Yeah. Okay. Three, two, one. Hello. Hello and and welcome, welcome to to the, the survival. survival. <laughs> <laughs> we started off so well. Oh, it started off confident and then I was like, I'm not feeling confident anymore. Well, my name is Sean and you are... Sarah. And we are your hosts for this podcast. Sarah does her podcasting through the medium of mime. I know, interpreter dance. <laughs> yeah, um, so yeah, welcome. We are season two, episode two. Three. Three, is it? Yeah, mate. I don't know. You did, and uh, no, we did Bethnal Green and the bombing, uh, the explosion that happened in Lebanon. Oh, I remember. So yeah, it is episode three. That's really scary that it was a week ago and I don't remember it at <laughs> all. <laughs> Not even like a vague. I was like, no, we haven't. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't happen. Ooh, if I don't remember it, it didn't happen. <laughs> that is true. So, uh, you went first last week, I believe. I have no idea. (laughs) You you don't know what happened, do you, last week? I I just don't know. (laughs) So, yeah, you went first last week in the podcast crooner. Ooh. So, uh, shall I start this week? Yeah, I'm intrigued. Oh, do we want to do any, like, businessy-businessy stuff first? Have you got any book recommendations? (laughs) <laughs> no no was that was that just a one-off oh I think this last week has just been crazy with work with covid with everything so this is and the weather the weather oh crazy weather yeah there was like all floods everywhere and then there was snow it's just been a bit of one of those weeks and I've just got to the end of it and not really known how <laughs> but you are hit you survived I did. I did survive. I'm still here. Um, I've had a bit of a fall this week. A fall? Yeah, have I not told you? No, I didn't know you'd got to the age where we needed to be worried about you falling over. Well, my last fall was when I broke my wrist a few years ago, wasn't it? You were drunk and rumour has it you might have been pushed. I think I was definitely pushed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, this one is you know how um, I love my darling Rottweiler? Yeah. Yeah, in the park with both the dogs. Oh, Loki's just seeing a zip. Nice. Um, and running along with Loki, and Zena just comes and stands in front of me. She's a massive, massive dog, isn't she? She's, She's huge. huge. And she just stood in front of me. So I was, it was all in like slow motion. I was like kind of falling, 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 trying to get my footing. And she just wouldn't move. I was just like, dog so yeah I ended up falling in over. the mud in the snowy mud yeah oh, mate and I hurt myself <laughs> oh, where did you hurt I've got a grazed knee and a grazed hand oh my god but you haven't had that <laughs> since you were seven no I know <laughs> it's a bit of a shock <laughs> did anyone give you a plaster and a magic kiss no I was told to go and find a plaster myself oh dude harsh <laughs> I reckon I was pushed again, really. <laughs> well, you know, if it wasn't COVID, I'd come and give it a magic kiss for you. Oh, thank you. There you go. Mm. Thank you. Well, I don't have anything quite as exciting to share. No one pushed me and I didn't fall over. Uh, but I did listen to a new podcast. Okay. Called The Apology Line by uh, Wondery. And the apology line uh, started in the 80s by an artist, I forget his name, but a conceptual artist. Mm. And he set up 
this in New York. He set up this um, answer machine, you know, the big old fashioned answer machines. He set one of them mm-hmm. up and the outgoing message said that you could uh, apologize for anything that you've done criminally Ooh. and it wouldn't be shared with the police or anything. Don't leave your name. And this guy phones up and he's like, yeah, so I'm a serial killer, basically. <gasps> Oh my god! It's really interesting. Some of the recordings are quite hard to listen to, so I had to put headphones on so that I could really hear hear the recordings. It's like it's from the eighties, all the tapes. They're really old. Oh wow! Um, yeah, there's only two episodes out so far, but it's pretty exciting. Oh, you'd love to text that one to me, and I'll yeah. I'll give it a listen. It was recommended by my big sister, who uh, obviously, yeah, she's got good recommendations. On. She's got a good taste, definitely. I'm um I've not really been listening to podcasts this week but I am finding that I'm very invested in RuPaul's Drag Race UK (laughs) (laughs) like really invested in it so the person that I thought was the best oh sorry the dog's um the person that I thought was the best got voted out in week one and I am still not over that wow obviously you're not good at um spotting a good drag artist I reckon there's going to be a twist, though, okay. and that they'll come back. But that's just me being hopeful. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe when all of this pandemic is over, you could maybe explore some of the um, the houses in Manchester. Mm. We, we could do that. Well, yeah, I know quite a few drag artists. So I know Anaphylactic and Cheddar Gorges. Mm. They were quite big in Manchester. Uh, and also, my mate Dave does a very good Teresa Dismay. Ooh, that sounds interesting. Yeah. And I was once at an award ceremony where some people came and did some Vogue dancing around our tables. <gasps> That's really fun. It was pretty weird and quite fun. And I bet it was weird, but yeah, I bet it's fun. Because like we just didn't, because they were so good. Like they just sort of appeared. <laughs> out of like basically other tables and you didn't really clock them at first as being sort of vogue dancers and then suddenly they just all started doing this amazing stuff but they were like right like right next to you or right behind you um yeah it was really nice different kind of like award ceremony entertainment because normally it's all teeth and tits isn't it but it was a bit more interesting cool well let me start then rambling on yes i am ready so I would like to thank from the bottom of my heart Wikipedia <laughs> and um, the New York Times, specifically Ooh. an article by Maura, Maura Dolan. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you for the words. Um, okay. Are you sitting comfortably? I will be in a second. Okay, well, I'm just, but you can begin. I'm just going to carry on regardless. because Yeah, you do that. I'll sort myself out. <laughs> okay. Space. <gasps> the final frontier. For me, space tra- travel is something I cannot imagine ever doing. Uh-uh. But I absolutely love it. And I love it because of Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future in Star Trek. I've always loved Star Trek I don't care that it's geeky I think it's great Captain Picard makes me feel safe So if there's a space disaster happening I want to be with Captain Picard He always makes my decisions Um, So I'm going to tell you The story of the Challenger disaster Oh my god This happened January 28th 1986 so that's 35 years ago and I'm going to tell you about the crew so we have Francis R. Scoresbury commander he was an American pilot engineer and astronaut he held a degree in aerospace engineering and in April 1984 the year of my birth he piloted the month and year of my birth. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> so basically, Sarah, on your birthday, yeah. Gosby piloted the Challenger's fifth mission, which successfully, because of your birth, Sarah, deployed one satellite and repaired the other. Thanks to you Ooh. and your birth. Then I we've got know. Michael J. Smith. He was a pilot, engineer, and astronaut. He served as a pilot on the Space Shuttle Challengers. 
uh, Space Turtle Challenger, and it was Smith's voice was the last one heard before the disaster. <gasps> he held a degree in engineering, and during his naval career, he flew 28 different types of aircraft, and he logged wow. 4,867 hours in uh, flying time. Gosh. Following the Challenger disaster, he was promoted posthumously by Congress to the rank of captain. Then we've got Ronald McNair. He was a mission specialist, astronaut, and physicist. He flew as a specialist on board the Challenger's fourth mission. He became the second African American to be in space. He had two brothers, Carl and Eric. And this is pretty cool. As a youth, he refused to leave the segregated public library without being allowed to check out his books. And that yes. library is now named after him. Good. Um, his brother Carl wrote the official biography called The Spirit of Robert E. McNair, Astronaut and American Hero. Mm. Uh, then we've got Elson. I'm sorry, Elson, I'm going to say your surname probably wrong. Onazuka. He was a mission specialist, astronaut, and engineer from Hawaii. He was a husband Ooh. and father to two daughters. He successfully flew into space with the Space Shuttle, shuttle Discovery. He was the first person of Japanese ancestry to reach space. Then well. we've got Judith Renskin. She was a mission specialist. She was an electrical engineer, software engineer, biomedical engineer, pilot, and NASA astronaut. Wow. She was the second American woman in space and the fourth woman in space worldwide. She logged 145 hours in orbit. The Society of Women Engineers awards um, the Res Renskin Challenger Medal annually to a woman who has challenged the space industry. Then we have Gregory Jarvis. He was a payload specialist. So a payload specialist is like someone who comes from maybe a company or a different field, and they're not, not like a NASA-trained astronaut. Right. So he worked for Hughes Aircraft. He planned to conduct experiments regarding the effect of weightlessness on fluid. In 2004, Jarvis was uh, posthumously awarded the Congress Medal for Honor. And then finally, we have Christina McAulfey. She was an American teacher and astronaut. In 1985, she was selected from more than 11,000 applicants to participate in the NASA Teacher in Space project, which mm. were, and she was scheduled to become the first teacher in space. She was planning to, to conduct experiments and to teach two lessons from space. Hmm. After her death, a number of schools and scholarships were named in her honour, and she also was posthumously awarded the Congress Space Medal in, of Honour in 2004. So I just wanted to tell you, because I think sometimes in these disasters, we kind of lose sight of the people, and, mm. and you have to be so dedicated and hardworking and stupidly clever and also not throw up on yourself to be able to be an astronaut for NASA so I just wanted to say a bit about these guys the training is intense isn't it it looks horrendous <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. I, never in a million years would I ever no, <laughs> I'm no, no way literally fail on the first hurdle yeah but even before they got to the fact that I cannot do maths <laughs> yeah oh. i'd probably fail on trying to open the door to get in to do the exam i was thinking that <laughs> you're like no mate you, you just open the door into your face you you can't possibly be in charge of a spaceship <laughs> so space shuttle challenger broke apart 73 seconds into its flight killing all seven crew members aboard the spacecraft crumbled over the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Florida. The disaster happened when hot gases from the Challenger's right solid boosters, known as SRBs, burned through a seam in the multi-sectioned rocket, sending a jet of heat towards the shuttle's huge fuel tank. The explosion occurred at an altitude of 48,000 feet. 
the seven crew members of the Space Shuttle Challenger probably remained conscious for at least 10 mm. seconds after the disastrous explosion. They switched on at least three emergency breathing pa- packs, a report indicated. Uh-oh was the last words recorded by pilot Michael J. Smith 73 seconds after takeoff. I think 10 seconds is longer than you think as well. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Oh, um, my while goodness. I was writing this, I tried to hold my breath for 10 seconds and I got a bit panicky. Wow. Yeah, no, it's definitely longer than, than you think it is. Mm. Um, it's my guess that at the point at that point, there was an awareness on the part of at least the commander and the pilot because that was the moment of the explosion, says Rod. Rod Richard, I'm trying to call him Roger, but that is not his name, yeah. said Richard H. Truly, NASA's Associate Administrator for Space Flight. Uh, uh, uh. Recorded tapes indicate conversations only among the four crew members who sat on the flight deck. That would be the commander, um, Francis R. Scosby, Smith and mission specialist Elson and Judith um, R. Reskin. Unlike the flight deck, which had a voice-activated intercom system, the middle deck system required crew members to push a button to be recorded. Crew members, you know, the teacher, so Christina mm-hmm. and Robert, uh, Ronald E. McNair and Gregory Jarvis, who sat in the middle deck, followed NASA procedures and did not record themselves. However, they were able to hear all the conversations of the others. Oh, my God. Dr. Joseph P. Kerwin, Director of Life Sciences, said the explosion that tore the crew compartment from the rest of the orbiter probably would not have killed or even seriously injured the crew members. He noted that noted at the press conference that he could not rule out the possibility that they may have been alive until the crew cabin hit the water. Gosh. The compartment crashed into the water nearly intact two minutes and 45 seconds after the explosion traveling at a speed of 207 miles per hour none of the crew inside uh, the compartment could have survived the impact that's pretty fast that's insane yeah until 73 seconds the conversations of the crew appeared to have been normal one second after takeoff smith says here we go 10 seconds later he says go you mother Reskin, 15 seconds after takeoff, said what NASA described as fucking hot. At 19 seconds, Smith mentioned the wind shear that the rocket was that was rocketing. Yeah, that rocketed the shuttle. And he said, looks like we've got a lot of wind here today. At 60 seconds, he says, feel that mother go. And at 73 uh, 73 seconds, he says, "Uh uh-oh. So the crew compartment was eventually recovered from the ocean floor after a lengthy search and recovery operation. The shuttle had no escape system and the impact that the crew of the crew compartment terminal velocity with the ocean surface was too forceful to be survivable. The disaster resulted in 32 months hiatus in the space shuttle program and the formation of the Rogers Commission a special commission appointed by the United States President Ronald Reagan to investigate the accident. The commission found that NASA's organisational culture and decision-making process had been a key contributing factor to the disaster, with the agency violating its own safety rules. My God. Yeah. NASA's managers had known since 1977 that they are the SRBs contained a potential catastrophic flaw. NASA's managers also disregarded warnings from engineers about the dangers of launching posed by the low temperatures of that morning and failed to adequately report these technical concerns to their supervisors. Approximately 17% 17 of the US population witnessed the launch on live television broadcasted because of the teacher, Christina, Mm. who who was scheduled to be the first teacher in space. Their parents, partners, family members and friends, these amazing, beautiful, smart people all witnessed their brave loved ones who died in an avoidable disaster. And that just really breaks my heart. Mm, That's awful. So, yeah, that is my little story about the That's so sad. disaster and just I just was thinking 
that they must have been it must have been and the let like so electrical the energy waiting to watch that rocket take off and then you wouldn't believe what you were seeing would you no I just can't I would not be able to live with myself if I if I knew there was a potential flaw with something that could go so hard if something's gonna go wrong it's gonna be horribly wrong isn't it yeah totally a loss of life and I just couldn't live with myself if I didn't no report that or prevent it happening and but imagine feel like being the person who did report it and then it didn't go any higher because that's your job mm. is to report to your manager your manager's then meant to take that on you just feel so guilty that you flagged it mm. you've done more you follow procedure but then the procedure wasn't followed further oh no it's just awful and like when we've been talking in the past about you know when airplane when airplanes go wrong i mean you're so how high up aren't you yeah and being blasted through the air by a lot of fuel Ooh, that's horrible it's something that you know in our jobs we don't have to worry about no but i don't I'm like sorry. the idea of it happening <laughs> No, wouldn't it be okay. awful if we find out tomorrow that we've both been promoted to astronauts? <laughs> I think it's highly unlikely. We really hope so. <laughs> We'd be really upset. They'd be like, so we've decided that you guys are going to be the first podcasters in space. Have you? Um, there's that thing there, isn't there? Is it Richard Branson is selling tickets to be the first people to do like space tourism, or whatever. Oh, people really? want to, are going to pay to go to space yeah no thank you I just look at it from like my window <laughs> okay right I need to warn you that I might have gotten a bit carried away <laughs> oh good we got like another seven and a half page saga yes excellent cool go for it I'll let you know if we need to uh, have a break okay so what I've done is I've outlined what happened yeah. in my disaster, but then I found like a story um, written by, like it's for the words of somebody who survived it. Oh, wow. So I wanted to read that as well. Like a verbatim. So, yeah. So I'm sorry I got a bit carried away. No, but one I like thing, it. I noticed how like anxious I was though when I was researching the story and it is a story that I vividly remember happening too. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So my story is about Hurricane Katrina. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember that. It was devastating. Indeed. So are you ready? I am indeed. I'm not sure I am. Early in the morning on August 29th, 2005, Hurricane Katrina struck the Gulf Coast of the United States. When the storm made landfall, it had a Category 3 rating on the Saffir-Simpson hurricane sail. It brought sustained winds of 100 to 140 miles per hour and stretched some 400 miles across. Wow. While the st yeah, while the storm itself did a great deal of damage, its aftermath was catastrophic. I don't really know how to pronounce this word, so I'm just going to make it up. Levee bridges led to massive flooding and many people charged that the federal government was slow to meet the needs of the people affected by the storm i remember that yeah mm -hmm. i do too hundreds of thousands of people in louisiana mississippi and alabama were displaced from their homes and experts estimate that katrina caused more than 100 billion dollars in damage the devastating aftermath of Hurricane Katrina exposed a series of deep-rooted problems, including controversies over the federal government's response, difficulties in search and rescue efforts, and lack of preparedness for the storm, particularly with regard to the city's ageing series of levees, 50 of which failed during the storm. And this significantly flooded the low-lying city, causing much of the damage. Katrina's victims tended to be low-income and African-American in disproportionate numbers and many of those who lost their homes faced years of hardship 10 years after yeah. yeah 10 years after the disaster the then president barack obama said what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster a failure of government mm. to look out for its own citizens the city of new orleans and other coastal communities in katrina's path remained significantly altered more than a decade after the storm both both physically and culturally 
the damage was so extensive that some pundits had argued controversially that New Orleans should be permanently abandoned. What? Yeah, even as the city vowed to rebuild. Okay, so... The storm that would later become known as Hurricane Katrina surfaced on August 23rd, 2005 as a tropical depression over the Bahamas, approximately 350 miles east of Miami. Over the next two days, the weather system gathered strength, earning the designation Tropical Storm Katrina, and it made landfall between Miami and Fort Lauderdale, Florida, as a Category 1 hurricane. Yeah. Um, sustained winds of 70 miles per hour lashed the Florida Peninsula and rainfall totals of five inches were reported in some areas. The storm spent less than eight hours over land and then Katrina weakened to a tropical storm. Um, and this is because hurricane, I learned something today, hurricanes yeah. require warm ocean water su- to sustain their speed and strength and they begin to weaken when they're over land. Okay. However, the storm then crossed back into the Gulf of Mexico where it quickly regained strength and hurricane status um, and it quickly intensified as it hit those warm waters. So on, so when Katrina strengthened to this Category 3 hurricane now with top hmm. winds exceeding 115 miles per hour. Yeah. That's, I can't imagine being hit by a wind of 115 miles an hour. No, um, I mean, like we've had some pretty windy days in the UK where we've had weather warnings of like 60 miles per hour winds haven't we Mm. and I know that being out on them days has been pretty full on Mm. like you just wouldn't be able to stay on your feet would you no and um the size of the hurricane as well was virtually the entire of the Gulf of Mexico it was huge yeah and by the following afternoon Katrina had become one of the most powerful Atlantic storms on record with winds now in excess of 170 miles per hour that's so insane. on the morning, I know. On the morning of August 29th, the storm made landfall as a Category Four hurricane at Plaquemines Parish, Louisiana. Um, Say which it with confidence. T- I have no <laughs> idea how to pronounce that. I've definitely made a bodge of that. Um, so it 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 hit this place, this parish, approximately four to five miles southeast of New Orleans. Yeah. And it, con- it continued on a course to the northeast, crossing the Mississippi Sound and making a second landfall later that morning near the mouth of the Pearl River. A storm surge more than 26 feet high slammed into coastal cities of Gulfport and Biloxi, Mississippi, devastating homes and resorts along the beachfront. So the city of New Orleans was at a disadvantage even before Hurricane Katrina hit. And this was something that experts had warned about for years prior but it had limited success in changing policy. So the region sits in a natural basin and some of the city is be- actually below sea level. Yeah. So it's prone to flooding anyway. And low-income low communities tend to be in the lowest-lying areas. And yeah. just south of the city, the powerful Mississippi River flows into the Gulf of Mexico. And during intense hurricanes, oncoming storms can push seawater onto land, creating what is known as a storm surge. Right. The, the, those forces typically cause the most hurricane-related fatalities. As well, I guess hurricane... if it's like a basin and you've you've got the, you've just got that. It's just going to flood quickly, isn't it? Yeah, you're below sea level like, already, so yeah. flood water is surprising how quickly flood water moves. Mm. Um. As Hurricane Katrina hit, New Orleans and surrounding parishes saw record storm surges as high as 19 feet. <gasps> oh my God. That's, that's high. Yeah. Isn't it? Can you imagine that coming at you? So although half the city actually lies above sea level, its average elevation is about six feet below sea level. Okay. And as a city, it is completely surrounded by water. Uh, over the course of the 20th century, the Army Corps of Engineers have built a system of levees and seawalls to keep the city from flooding. Yeah. The, le- the levees along the Mississippi River were strong and sturdy, but the ones built to hold back late Lake Pontchartrain, Lake Bourne, and the waterlogged swamps and marshes to the city's east and west were much less reliable. Before the storm, officials were worried that surge could overtop some levees and cause short-term flooding, but no one predicted that the levees might collapse below their designated height. Just looking at a picture on the internet of of New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina, and I'm not going to lie to you, it's like an aerial shot, Mm. and it looks like a sort of American Venice. Yeah, 
like I remember those pictures on the news oh, at the time. underwater mm. Bef- okay I've read that no neighborhoods that sat below sea level many of which housed the city's poorest and most vulnerable people were at great risk of flooding the day before Katrina hit New Orleans mayor Ray Najin issued the city's first ever mandatory evacuation order. He also declared that the Superdome, which was a stadium located on relatively high ground, mm. uh, would serve as a shelter of last resort for people who could not leave the city. So, for example, around 112,000 of New Orleans, nearly 500,000 population didn't have access to a car. Oh, God. Um, by nightfall, almost 80% of the city's population had evacuated. And there were about 10,000 people in the Superdrome, while tens of thousands of others chose to wait out the storm at home. Yeah. Federals initially, federal off- words, federal officials initially believed that the city had dodged the bullet. While New Orleans had been spared a direct hit by the intense winds of the storm, the true threat was soon apparent. The levee system that held back the waters of Lake Pontchartrain and Lake Bourne had been completely overwhelmed by 10 inches of rain and Katrina's storm surge. Areas east of the Industrial Canal were the first to flood. By the afternoon of August 29th, some 20% of the city was underwater. Jesus. By the time Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans early in the morning on Monday, August 29th, it had already been raining heavily for hours. When the storm surged arrived it overwhelmed many of the city's unstable levees and drainage canals water seeped through the soil underneath some levees and swept others away altogether um so tens of thousands of residents could not or would not leave and they either remained in their homes or sought shelters um such as at the convention center or the superdrome yeah as the already strained levee system continued to give way, the remaining residents of New Orleans were faced with a city that by August 30th was 80% underwater. Jesus. Many oh. local agencies found themselves unable to respond to the increasingly desperate situation as their own headquarters and control centres were under 20 feet of water. Under 20 feet of water. Yeah. It's a lot. With no relief in sight and in the absence of any organised effort to restore order some neighborhoods experienced substantial amounts of looting and helicopters were used to rescue many people from rooftops in the flooded it must have just felt like the end of the world yeah so we're talking some days now and they're gonna have no no power no food no communication and just they were just no one coming to rescue them yeah i remember this vividly it was awful on August 31st, the first wave of evacuees arrived at the Red Cross shelter at the Houston Astrodome, which was around 350 miles away from New Orleans. By September 1st, an estimated 30,000 people were seeking shelter under the damaged roof of the Superdome, and an additional 25,000 had gathered at the convention centre. Shortages of food and water, drinkable water quickly became an issue, and daily temperatures reached 32 degrees C, 90 degrees Fahrenheit. An absence of basic sanitation combined with the omnipresent bacteria-rich floodwaters created a public health emergency. So many people acted heroically in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. The Coast Guard rescued some 34,000 people in New Orleans alone and many ordinary citizens commandeered boats, offered food and shelter and did whatever else they could to help Mm. their neighbours. Yet the government, particularly the federal government, seemed unprepared for the disaster. Hmm. Even though experts had warned them. I know, right? Um, The Federal Emergency Management Agency took days to establish operations in New Orleans. Days. And even then did not seem to have a sound plan of action. Officials, even including President George W. Bush, seemed unaware of just how bad things were in New Orleans and elsewhere and how many people were stranded or missing how many homes and businesses had been damaged how much food water and aid was needed it was sort of like obviously well not maybe not obvious but it almost is that sort of systemic like racism where because it's happening Mm -hmm. to you know predominantly black community like it it didn't seem to be that important to those in power I just remember at the time being so outraged and it, oh my goodness it was just you could you could guarantee that if that if a flood of that magnitude happened <clears throat> where it was predominantly wealthy probably mm-hmm. white people 
like the aid would have been there straight away then you know that that wouldn't you wouldn't be getting into a situation where bacteria flood waters not not enough food uh was becoming a problem would you mm, no Katrina had left in her wake what one reporter called a total disaster zone where people were getting absolutely desperate. For one thing, many had nowhere to go. At the Superdome, <clears throat> where supplies had been limited to begin with, officials accepted 15,000 more refugees from the storm on, Monday, on the Monday before locking the doors. City oh leaders had God. no real plan for anyone else. Tens of thousands of people desperate for food, water and shelter broke into the Ernest N. Morial Convention Centre complex but they found nothing there but chaos. Meanwhile, it was nearly impossible to leave New Orleans. Poor people, especially without cars or anywhere else to go, were stuck. For instance, some people tried to walk over the Crescent City Connection Bridge to the nearby suburb of Gretna, but police officers with shotguns forced them to turn back. Are you kidding? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. So (sighs) these are like American citizens trying to get from one flooded area to a place of safety mm-hmm. and they're being treated like they're unwanted immigrants yeah the police just turned them back oh so that between... is appalling yeah you can see why i got so into the research on this because i remember it be you know it's something that stuck with me i remember um a friend of mine we weren't in contact at the time but she was actually in um was she in Louisiana? Um, mm. She's got like a scholarship. She's like, mm, right. really good at running and stuff. And I remember being worried about her because I knew she was in that general area. Um, but it was just the lack of the people. They were just left there. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's always looked like such a it's a place I've always wanted to visit. New Orleans, mm. like, it's like an incredible city. Put it Absolutely. on the list. We'll go there after I'll the put pandemic. it on the list. <laughs> Katrina pummeled huge parts of Louisiana, Mississippi and Alabama, but the desperation was most concentrated in New Orleans. Before the storm, the city's population was mostly black, around 67% of the population. Moreover, nearly 30% of its people lived in poverty. Katrina exacerbated these conditions and left many of New Orleans' poorest citizens even more vulnerable than they had been before the storm. It was not until September 2nd that an effective military presence was established in the city and National Guard troops mobilised to distribute food and water. The evacuation of hurricane victims continued and crews began to rebuild the breach levees. On September 6th, local police estimated that there were fewer than 10,000 residents left in New Orleans. As the recovery began, dozens of countries contributed funds and supplies and Canada and Mexico deployed troops to the Gulf Coast to assist with the clean-up and rebuilding. U.S. Army engineers pumped the last of the floodwaters out of the city on October 11th, 2005, some 43 days after Katrina made landfall. Ultimately, the storm caused more than $160 billion in damage and the population of New Orleans fell by 29% between the fall of 2005 and 2011. So there's a significant loss of life. And my sources for that were Britannica.com, History.com and National Geographic. So, do you want to hear my survivor story? Yeah, I've taken it. I've taken it verbatim from the Guardian. Okay, just because it it more powerful than yeah trying to reword it myself. Um, so this is a, an article. So um, we had given ourselves the luxury of ordering two new chairs after discarding both our storm damaged sofas. The delivery man was already on the front porch when I came around from the back of the house. He was a head taller than me, a bit over six feet with short hair, an engaging smile and a shirt embroidered with the store logo and his name, Andre. I asked how he'd done in the storm, a standard opening to conversations in those days. Mm. Not too bad, he said, with only the slightest hesitation. Well, we lost our house, but we're all here and okay now. I got a picture here, he said, as he pulled out a wallet and began um searching the various pockets a picture of my wife and baby he found the photograph a rough trapezoidal fragment cut out of a larger polaroid and then laminated with thick clear plastic his wife looked quite looked quite young and content in the snapshot alicia said andre beside her was a boy in a blue t-shirt reaching for the photographer andre jr andre pointed we stayed he continued my fault gotta say that first we got a solid two-story brick house out in gentilly 
had it for six years and it never flooded before, never got the least bit of water since we've been there. Plus I laid the new shingles myself and the roof solid three quarter inch treated plywood underneath. So I figured we'd be fine. Hmm. We was until the levees broke. And then the water started coming up so fast we had to scramble upstairs from the first floor. That water came right behind us, waltzing up the stairs like it owned the place and quick as a wink got to swirling around our ankles on the second floor. Then the lights went out, a flash of light and popping of sparks when the transformer down the block blew. I was stacking stuff in the dark on the beds and chest of drawers and hauling stuff to the attic best I could, thinking it would never stop. But the water finally topped out around my waist. Wow. I kept watch. It filled my pants pockets and then stopped like it had what it wanted. About midnight it was. I waded out onto the upstairs balcony from our bedroom to get a look. The water was running by my house just below the balcony railings and I could see this black oily surface going all around the block, Mm. filling streets and yards. People were yelling, banging on the roofs of houses from the inside. They'd climbed up to get away from the water and got themselves stuck in their attics with no way to break out. Jesus Christ, that's terrifying. Mm. Two days earlier, some politician had told everybody stay in to make sure they had an axe in their house, especially in their attics. The news people, and the president even, had acted like the man was some sort of farm boy for saying such things. Take your axes upstairs, he'd said. And those news folks had laughed, but here it was a flood in, and that nasty water was drowning folks like rats in their own houses. And you better know them folks wish that now that they had their axes. I couldn't tell exactly where the yelling was coming from because everything was echoing off the water and spinning from every which way. I went inside to make sure Alicia and Junior was okay. They wasn't, but I talked to them for a bit and they calmed down. We drank some water out of the upstairs bathroom sink, figuring the water hadn't had time to get bad yet. It wasn't that bad. Not that part. Because late the next morning, a motorboat full of guys in uniform come along and got us out of there. I still don't know who they was, but got us out of our house and took us to the Broad Street overpass, where there was maybe 200 folks already waiting around. Nothing to do. No food, no water, no blankets. But I figured somebody would come directly. They wouldn't just leave us there, no sir. But they did. They left us. Then they up and forgot us. And that's when things started to get bad. Really bad. Because there was some no-account folks up there and they were hassling the people who looked weaker and taking their money and food if they had any. They didn't bother us, at least for the first two nights. But I know they was looking too. Especially after that second night. And into the third morning with no food, no water at all, more and more folks just wading and swimming up there and floating in on rafts and plastic swimming pools and wheelbarrow tubs and all kinds of stuff. Folks were getting desperate and mean. Now, all this time, I've been calling my sister uptown on my cell phone and it's going down and she's saying, get on up here right now. There ain't no flooding and I got running water and electricity and a working real phone. But I've been looking down and the water is deep at the end of the overpass. I know neither my wife nor baby can swim and I ain't in the best of shape. So up to then, we were sitting it out, just waiting and hoping and trying to stay invisible to the bad guys. (gasps) Then in the morning, it happened. Some kid, maybe eight years old, climbed up on the overpass railing. And as soon as he got to the top, he just slips and falls right over. Down maybe 50 foot and into the water. Mm. Everybody rushes to that side and look for him, but he doesn't come up. And nobody goes down to try and get him. Mm. Because even if you jumped off and you didn't get killed, you'd have to swim a good half mile to the ramps to get back where you started. Mm. So we just saw that baby die and nobody did a thing. I could see the faces of the people that were stealing Robin from the folks. They saw a baby go down and you could tell it didn't mean nothing to them. Mm. Not a thing. That's when I decided we had to go. I had seen this man down toward the end of things, toward the water on the west end of the overpass, sleeping on an air mattress. Lots of plastic tubes in a row and about three feet across, like one of those things you used to use to float in a swimming pool. I took the wife and baby and I went to him and says, look, man, I've got to get my family out of here. I've got to get to my sister's house uptown where it's safe for them. And I want to ask you to loan me that air mattress, please, I says. And he looks me in the face and looks at the wife and the child and he gives me the mattress, not saying another word. (gasps) Wow. So I know. So we go down to the water and I get Alicia and Andre Jr. on that mattress and I start pushing and wading. It don't take 50 feet before I'm up to my neck and they're both crying and wanting to go back. 
but I keep on, not wanting to see no more of that overpass. We making good time until maybe three hours later, about halfway uptown, I feel the mattress bump into something big floating in the water. I tell Alicia to move it out the way and she holds out her hand and pushes and it turns over and it's a dead man. Mouth open, face all puffed up, something bad and he bobs on up to the mat. She starts screaming and pointing and she falls off the mat into the water right by this dead guy. I quick get around to the side to hold Junior on and push that dead man away. And then I grab Alicia and holler at her to stop and try and get up onto the mattress again so we can get going. For a bit there, I think I'm going to have to tie her up with my belt to get her calmed down and lying down on the mattress. But finally, she gets better and we make it to my sister's place. About a week later, we all got evacuated to Charlotte, North Carolina, and I got no complaints about that. Folks was nice to us, took care of us and made sure we was okay. They went out of their way to make us feel like we was worth something. I figure I owe them for that. So ever since I've been back and on the delivery truck again, I go out of my way to find somebody or need something every day and I try to help. Help somebody every day. Makes me feel good. So, where would you like me to put those chairs? Oh, that made me cry. That's why I had to read it all because it's just so powerful. Wow. That is, I mean... He's very good at describing, you know, what he saw and stuff so that mm. we can all understand it. And I cannot imagine being in a such... And a how place. strong was yeah, he, though? Yeah, making that decision. You know, the, the guilt he must have felt first off by saying we're going to stay, and he owns that. Yeah. Then having to be... Then being so aware that what the situation that they are in... They've got two situations, haven't they? They either mm. try and get away from a dangerous situation by putting themselves in another dangerous situation. Yeah, not knowing if you're going to make it. But, yeah, obviously the threat of them, other people, was big enough. Yeah, people were getting nastier and nastier, and I get it. They had no food. They had nothing. There was no one saying, okay, help and no, on yeah, the way. No one was in charge. No one was taking care of anything. No one was like, look, we're just going to wait a little bit longer. You know, there was no, no leader. Well, no, no, you know, like you're saying, like three days later, they still not got any food and water. And, you know, it's it's after that that he decides to take that risk. So he's had no food or water for no. three days. And then he's taking that risk of to save his swimming wife and his baby, floating yeah. his wife and baby. So he's swam, he's floated them along. It's insane. But I remember watching something not that long ago, um, and I'm pretty sure it was filmed in New Orleans. And it's starting to rebuild itself. People yeah. are coming back. And, you know, some people stayed all the way through. And they're trying to rebuild their lives. So, yeah, it's definitely somewhere I'd like to go visit. Well, if, you know, I've got the, uh, you know, what's it called? You know, when tourist, the tourist economy. If I can contribute towards a, a deep, you know, Absolutely. economy, I, I would like to. Mm. I'm going to put a link in the podcast um, notes with um, a link to the Katrina funds so if anyone does want to donate mm. they can and I thought we could do some top tips okay let's do that I've written some so I, I only have a few so uh, my top tips for being in space don't go <laughs> don't go is a top tip it is um well, one of my top tips are if you have safety procedures in the workplace and you're sending folks into space, then follow them procedures to the letter. Yep, I completely agree. And a top tip that I think works in all workplaces. If you feel that there is an unsafe culture in your workplace, be a fucking whistleblower. Damn right. There's nothing wrong with being a whistleblower if you think it's going to save lives and then while you were telling me your story and that story of the guy who survived mm. I wrote some stuff and one of my tips would be hold your uh, government accountable mm. I mean there are a lot of questions that that government needed to answer well yeah exactly listen to experts and take your axe to your attic yeah I mean I think maybe we should all just get an axe, a house axe, just in case. I mean, it wouldn't hurt, would it? It wouldn't well, hurt. It if you drop have... it on your foot, but... 
<laughs> Maybe a house axe and steel toe-cap slippers. Yeah. Uh, and then I also wrote that desperate situations make some folks mean, so be careful. Yeah. And help somebody every day. Uh, that's my favourite Yeah. That's a really good top tip, isn't it? Help somebody every day. Oh. Well, <clears throat> I've got a survivor of the week if you're interested. Have you? Yeah. Of course I'm interested. It's got some big words. Oh, excellent. <laughs> this will be fun. Okay, are you ready? Yeah. Adolf Hitler elected in Nam Nambia's local council elections, but has no plans for world domination. And this okay. is a Sky News report by Richard Robertson. Okay. <coughs> Unano, Unanon, Unana, Unana, Adolf Hitler, 54, was elected as local politician with 85% of the votes. Wow. However, Mr. Unana, as he prefers to be called, said that despite his unfortunate namesake, he has no plans for world for, to take over the world. Who'd call their child that? Well, speaking to the German news website Blind, he said his father gave him the name without understanding who the Nazi leader was or what he stood for. Nambia okay. is a former German colony, so it's not unusual for streets, places and people to be given German names. Okay. It was a perfectly normal name for me when I was a kid, he said. It wasn't until I grew older that I realised this man wanted to subjugate... Sub, subjugate uh, 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 excuse me. Wanted to subjugate the world and kill millions of Jews. The fact I have his name does not mean I'm striving for world domination. When asked why he didn't change his name, he said it was too late to do so, adding that he only uses his full name on on official documents. Mr. Unano won the election by one by 1,196 votes to 213. This guy is popular. Wow. Which handed him a seat on the regional council. He has been a popular local councillor for some time, as well as being a passionate anti-apartheid activist. Okay. I quite like him. He looks fun. And he isn't keen on world domination, which um, I always support. So, yeah, that's my survivor of the week. Nambia is surviving despite having Adolf Hitler. So, mm -hmm. all that's left to say is always take your axe up into the attic. And help somebody every day. And keep, keep on, on surviving. surviving.